Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. I want to turn in your Bibles this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 19. We're continuing our study here through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to get through verse 12 today. <clears throat> and then starting next week, we're really going to begin to pick up the pace. So I'd encourage you, you know, bring your seatbelts next week because we're going to start to move quickly through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, not that we won't consider it, um, but there's some passages that we can start to move through in a, in a, in, in sort of a um, greater volume of them at one time. But uh, you know, also I, I have I have a uh, a destination for us, if you will. You know, we're only 11 weeks away from Resurrection Sunday. Some of you may know that as Easter. Resurrection Sunday is what we call it around here, and, and we're only 11 weeks away. Can you believe that? And let me tell you, last year on that Easter Sunday, as I got up here and did the best I could do to just preach that message, I had just a few people sitting back there, Right? <laughs> I snuck my whole family in that day, in case you didn't know it. I snuck them all in to the service, and they were sitting right back there. This was a pretty empty room. Man, i got to tell you, I refuse to let that happen this year. I'm ready. I'm ready for Resurrection Sunday. I'm ready for a great celebration. It's only 11 weeks away. And here's the thing. Um, Our goal, Lord willing, is that we're going to finish Matthew on that Sunday. Um, it's the perfect opportunity to bring the, the study of this gospel to a close. And so, uh, so we're going to be moving quickly. And for Jesus, as we come into this chapter, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. You know, as, as, as I'm thinking about Resurrection Sunday, here is Jesus, as we, as we catch up with where he's at here in chapter 19, Jesus is thinking about the cross. Perhaps more now than, than, than through the early parts of his ministry as he's now making his way physically toward Jerusalem. As we come to this chapter, the fact is, as I sort of alluded to, the content that we will cover this morning is likely very personal to most people. We're dealing today with the topic of marriage and divorce. I would title the sermon this morning, A Covenant Relationship. And and it's typical that most people, perhaps most of you in here, have been affected by divorce in some way. Whether it was you yourself who have experienced your own divorce, or you are a child of divorced parents, or you have children or siblings who are divorced, and and so on, it is quite pervasive in our culture today. We know that. You know, as of this year, there are over 1.3 million practicing attorneys in our country. I have several friends that are attorneys, okay? I'm not trying to knock them. Throughout the 20th century, though, the number of lawyers in this country grew 793%. The rate of growth in the legal profession has been two times that of the population growth. And specifically, in this year, in the year 2021, divorce and family law is projected to bring in over $12 billion. It's an interesting topic, right? The day that we have our annual family meeting, isn't it? Because we know divorce and its impact is truly all about the family, the erosion of the family unit. And listen, there's a chance that I'm going to offend someone today. or or make someone feel uncomfortable today if I haven't already just by the mention of it. There's nothing, of course, right, like beginning the message with the mention of abortion, trafficking, pornography, racism, and divorce. We're off to a wonderful start today, aren't we? Put all those hashtags in the YouTube message and we'll see how many views we get today, right? Can we just say this this morning as we enter into this? Can we just say and recognize that there are many stories in this room here this morning? Can we recognize that we are all broken that we all have things that we're dealing with, 
things that we're healing from, things that we're recovering from, that we all have stuff. And so today, can we commit to grace? Can we, can we commit to grace and to loving one another? And you know, if we're called to understand God's Word and apply it, if, if, if we know that we are to pursue unity amongst the body of Christ, if we know that we are to, to truly love one another, that we're, we're to uh, uh, allow forgiveness and reconciliation to occur, then can we just rest in that this morning? But here's the other thing. But let's also commit as hard as it is sometimes to really considering what God's word has to say. Sometimes it's difficult, but it, but it doesn't give us the excuse to say, oh, I don't, I don't want to receive this. Because, you know, God's word is countercultural. It truly is in, in so many respects because we are sinners. We are affected from a fall. And so in our flesh, everything about them, the word of God from the time of the fall is just contrary to us. And so there's a, there's a war that's being waged within you. There's a war that's being waged in this world. But when we are confronted with spiritual truths, it, 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 we wrestle with it. We struggle with it. The flesh struggling with the spirit. And so sometimes we come to these chapters where we go, man, that's, that's hard for me to receive that. But it doesn't mean we have the choice, necessarily. What his word has to say is a lot different than what our world has to say today. And, and that can be hard sometimes, but we can't ignore it. And so let's jump in here. In the beginning of, of chapter 19, in just the first two verses here, we get a, a little bit of an update as to where Jesus is at. It says, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. Remember, he's been uh, addressing uh, the disciples there through Matthew chapter 18, and he had finished these things, and he departed from Galilee. So a little bit of time has gone by, and he comes into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, verse 1 says. And in verse 2 it says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And so as I mentioned, Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem, his Galilean ministry. And I don't know about you, but when I think about this, I don't... I don't even know how to really describe it, but as I just read about Jesus and, and read about his ministry, I'm thinking his Galilean ministry is coming to an end. There's this area where it all began when he was walking along the seashore and he calls his disciples and he says, I, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's three years ago, almost three years ago that it happened in terms of our reading. And we're now at a place where we're reading about Jesus. Much time has gone by. Sometimes it's difficult for us to grasp that as we just read through this. And as he leaves Galilee, he's effectively, he's not said it, but he's not coming back. He's not coming back to Galilee. He's making his way towards his death upon the cross. And so this time has is, is come to an end, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem, and he's continuing to heal. Great multitudes are coming to him, and he's continuing to heal. He's not just healing one person, he's healing multitudes. And people are going to continue to follow him all the way into Jerusalem. They're going to cry out as he comes into Jerusalem. It's his triumphal entry, and they're going to abandon him quickly thereafter. And no sooner is he near Jerusalem than do the Pharisees show up again. And so we see this in verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Notice that they're testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now if this sounds to you like a random question, good job, it is. Okay? Maybe not random on their part in terms of their having an intention behind them, but this is super strange for them to come up to him and be like, Hey, what about divorce? right? As Jesus is healing multitudes, wouldn't they come to him and say, wow, look at all these things you're doing. How are you doing it? How are you accomplishing these things? But no, because he, here, please understand, the Pharisees were not so eager for Jesus to return so they, could, so they could have a lesson on family law here, okay? This isn't just them go, oh, hey, Jesus is back. We can get some instruction on marriage. 
Now this was another attempt to trap Jesus and to turn the people against him. And so you see in many respects the culture at this time was not so different from today in terms of the ease and frequency of divorce. Differently at this time, however, were the laws surrounding it, and there were really two views. And so again, as the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're throwing out this seemingly random question, they have intentions. Okay? They want to trap Jesus, and they've come to the conclusion that if we ask him this question, because of the pervasiveness of divorce in our culture, depending on how he answers it here, we're going to be able to back him into a corner. We're setting a trap for him. And so uh, many people understood the various laws surrounding divorce at this time. As I mentioned, there was really two views. There was a liberal view and a more conservative view. Does that sound familiar in any way? And now the more conservative school of thought came from someone uh, named Shammai, Rabbi Shammai. And, and, and really this view limited divorce really to the grounds of sexual immorality and, and somewhat more liberally even just immodesty on the part of the wife. Make a special note here, divorce at this time, some of the different laws surrounding it meant that it was really a right for the man, not for the wife, okay? Generally speaking, in ancient Jewish culture, it was, it was about men, okay? The women had very few rights, and so that certainly applied in this case. But there was a more conservative view that said, it's really just about sexual immorality and immodesty on the part of the wife. That's grounds for divorce. But then there was a more liberal school of thought, and it was in fact the more dominant view, and that came from Rabbi Hillel, which essentially said, if the wife does anything you dislike, you can divorce her. What types of things? Let's say she burns the breakfast. Divorce. She's no longer attractive to you. Divorce. Even her voice can be heard by the neighbors. Divorce. I'm not making these things up, okay? So the Pharisees... Once again, far less interested in being educated on this, are hoping to trap Jesus into picking a side here, which inevitably will alienate some of the people and maybe even position him in conflict with the law. This is their hope. So the question has been asked. The Pharisees here arrive. No question at all about healing, about the things that Jesus is doing. No real interest in him. Just can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And look at Jesus' response, beginning in verse 4 through 6. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice first off what Jesus does here. He points them to Scripture. Jesus here is tested by the Pharisees. He's asked a question by the Pharisees, and he brings them to the Word of God. The incarnate Word of God, Jesus, points them to the Word of God. Listen, whenever your faith is tested in this world, whenever your faith is questioned, point people to the Word. Christian, swing your sword. Swing your sword more. Point people to the Word of God. And so here Jesus directs them to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. He takes them back to the beginning, the law of, of, of first occurrence, okay? Meaning when we're studying something in Scripture, go back to the beginning. Where did it first appear? That, that gives us the basis or the foundation for our understanding. And he says to them, haven't you read? In the beginning. And he takes them back there to Genesis. And what is the implication here then that he's communicating to them? Jesus, Jesus is saying at the very beginning of, the, of time, Marriage was created and designed by God. The covenant relationship between a man and a woman is a covenant before God. And it's not to be broken. 
He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Really speaking then to the audacity of people playing God in their flippant views of marriage. For far too long, our culture has accepted that somehow marriage is ordained and created by the state and must then be governed by the state. Where did that come from? The only thing that the state should do is keep records of marriage. That's it. They didn't create it. They haven't ordained it. When I first started doing weddings in the church, it was one of those interesting things you didn't really consider. And the Lord gave me the opportunity to do a lot of weddings. And it was an interesting thing because for a long time, as one who had gotten saved in college after I had kind of left our hometown, but then having all of those thoughts about how I misrepresented Christ to people before I truly came to surrender my life to him, I had these, this sense of guilt about, I need to go back and make a lot of these things right. I need to go back and tell all of these people, hey, I told you I was a Christian, but I really wasn't. But that's an awkward thing to do too, right? I tried it with one of them and he really didn't talk to me after that. He was just like, you're weird, right? But then over time, you become a pastor and people start to hear that you're a pastor and then guess what? When somebody wants to get married, what do they need? Typically a pastor, but they're not going to church. Hey, do we know any pastors? Hey! And so all of a sudden now, all these people that we knew in high school are coming to me, Right? Now, there's some, there's some ways in which you need to navigate this, right? As a pastor, you're just not going to be complicit in every wedding. There needs to be, you can't be unequally yoked, right? But here, what's happening is I've got all these unbelieving couples coming to me and saying, well, you do our wedding, and I'll say, let me pray about it, and are you willing to commit to premarital counseling? And then, then boom, you just, you're presenting the gospel, right? And, you're, and I get, I, the Lord gave me so many opportunities to just speak into these couples' lives, both Ashley and I, as we'd meet with them, and it was a wonderful thing. And early on when I'm doing these weddings, right, I would say, and by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the state of Michigan at that time, is, is sort of what you were taught to say. And after a little while, I was like, forget that, I'm dropping that, I don't care what Michigan has to say. By the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you, Right? I don't include the state in that. Sorry for that rabbit trail. And so you see, Jesus is saying to them, you as men want me to side on a particular view of divorce, a liberal view or a conservative view, and I'll tell you, what right do you even have to debate this matter? God created marriage, not you. So it is God who has authority over it. And we need to remember this today because, listen, this is always the case. Take, take out divorce and insert a number of different things today, which you're quite familiar with. You'll be asked on a regular basis, which side are you on? Which side are you on? Are you liberal or are you conservative? Right? On any number of different topics. And, and, and increasingly so, the correct answer to that question is, I'm not on any of those sides. It's God who has the authority over all this. I'm on His side. And so Jesus in His response says, no, divorce is not to be so. The covenant relationship is not to be broken. And He takes the topic out of their hands and He takes their perspective off of themselves and off of man as Jesus has been doing consistently here, chapter after chapter, taking the perspective off of man and He puts it back on God. And so here's your first lesson today on the covenant relationship of marriage. If you're taking notes, is that God created marriage, not man, so God has authority over it, not man. Let me state that a little bit more personally. God created marriage, not you. So God has authority over it, not you. Now you might be asking the question, well then, for a Christian who's, who's yes, in a very difficult situation, is there such thing as a biblical divorce? And the Pharisees are asking essentially the same question in verse 7. As they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce 
and to put her away? This is a good question. And so you see, I think the Pharisees at this moment, I think they go, oh, we've got him. Because he's contradicted Moses now. And everybody knows how important Moses is at this point. And if Jesus says that Moses is wrong, everybody's going to run away. They're going to turn their backs on him. Now, they may not have anticipated his previous answer, but now he has seemingly, again, contradicted the law of Moses. And what they're referring to here is in uh, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy in chapter 24, it's really in verses 1 through 4, but in verse 1 it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. That's the beginning there of, of this passage that they're referencing. And so when they say, Moses, hey, he gave instruction on how to do this, so what about that? And so here, yes, we see Moses is giving instruction on divorce, but note their question again. They said, why then did Moses command? Did Moses command? Did Moses command that they get divorced? No, he didn't. And this is what Jesus addresses in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, Jesus says, Moses did not command this. This was not some directive. It was an allowance. He allowed it to happen. If we consider all the verses here... uh, in, again, verse 1 through 4 in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And what's happening here, what Moses is really communicating to them in a sense here is he's, he's, he's almost more giving them a warning to say, listen, once she's gone, and maybe you regret it, and things don't turn out the way that you thought they were going to turn out, you don't get to have her back. What, what Moses is doing here is not commanding divorce. What he's doing is giving instruction based off of the hardness of their hearts and essentially saying, you might want to think about this a little bit before you proceed. And, and listen, there was much in the Old Testament that God simply allowed for, not that he condoned or encouraged. He just allowed it, most commonly because of the hardness of our hearts, because of our stubbornness, because of our sinfulness. It does not mean that it was his design, as Jesus says, but in the beginning it was not so. And so we need to ask ourselves, do you want to experience God's design, or do you want to operate in permitted disobedience because of the hardness of your heart? Now the question remains, does the Bible allow for divorce for any reason? And I would say this morning to finally answer the question is it would seem, yes. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So, what we see here is that Jesus has, yes, made an allowance for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. Now, what seems to be clearly in view here, especially if you do a study of the Greek, is is in this case, it is adultery. 
It is a physical breaking of the marriage covenant through physical intimacy with someone other than your spouse. Now, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, verse 15, will provide some additional clarification on the issue of divorce and will refer to something that we would call abandonment. Wherein a Christian spouse who has an unbelieving spouse, if that unbelieving spouse takes off, as it were, Paul says, you're free. You don't need to pursue. You can go ahead and, and move on. Now, I think it's really important that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides this instruction. And while it does not then give us license to sort of operate entirely in the gray and then just start to approve of divorce for any reason, it does give us some common sense perspective that I believe the Holy Spirit knew that we would need because here's the thing sadly today there is some real legalism on this issue and I'm not saying we shouldn't be very conservative as it relates to our approach to divorce but there is some real legalism here on this issue wherein say someone is in an abusive relationship right and the husband's just being awful to the wife he's physically and he's verbally abusive and there are some who will say well you just got to stick with it you just got to stick with it and you win him over with your gentle and your quiet spirit. And you know he's not been unfaithful, right? So he's, he's, he's continuing to physically harm you, but he's not stepped out on you. And I'm sorry, that's just crazy. That we would, put, that we would encourage a woman to remain in such a situation. We don't need to wait on the man to step out on his wife before we give her license to go and to say, this is not okay. No, we say this man has absolutely already abandoned his marriage. And you don't need to stay and endure such abuse. Now, maybe, maybe s such a woman in a situation doesn't immediately go and file for divorce. Maybe this is a separation that follows with some real intervention, right? And some intense counseling and different things like that, right? But I think what, what we need to understand here is Paul's instruction gives us a little bit more insight into how to navigate some of these complexities because they're, 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 they're there in our culture today. But here's the thing. That's it, Right? What we need to understand here is that there are just a couple of allowances for divorce. Far fewer than what are cited in the numerous divorces that will happen in this week alone in our country. Just a couple of allowances. Infidelity and, infidelity and abandonment. And furthermore, Jesus is saying, look, look, here's the thing. He's saying you, you have a right. There's an allowance here for it. But his previous response reminds us that it's not God's design. It doesn't mean that this is what God wants. And that would bring us to our second lesson this morning regarding the covenant relationship of marriage is that while God may provide allowance for, merit, for divorce, it is not his desire or his design. Once again, while God may provide allowance for divorce, it is not his desire or his design. And this is, once again, countercultural. It isn't what our flesh wants to hear when it's been offended and, and, it, and here's the thing, it's countercultural for the disciples too, as you see in the response in verse 10. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. See, the disciples are bringing all of this in and they're thinking, my goodness, if everything you're saying, Jesus, is true, if this is how this is supposed to go down, then it might be better not to get married. And this is showing some of the foolishness, okay, on the part of the disciples here in terms of how they're thinking about this. They've very much given themselves to probably some of this liberal thought. And so they don't get it. This is far different than what they were accustomed to, and it is for us in our culture too. In our culture today, you can get a divorce easy. It can be quick depending on the state and the circumstances. 
And it can be for any number of reasons, most of which, as I mentioned, are unbiblical. And imagine Peter, if you will, who had recently asked in response to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 on forgiveness, how many times, Lord? How many times do we forgive? Seven? That's got to be at seven. That's got to be the limit on our forgiveness, right? And what does Jesus say? Right? Seventy times seven. He says to Peter, just start forgiving. Forget about counting it. And so they've just really dealt with that. They've just dealt with that concept there. And now they're being told, look, I can't, I can't just go write a certificate of divorce because I was offended in all these ways. I mean, I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta endure this. Yes, because that's what he desires. And so you see, think about the placement then of this text. Yes, this was a random question from the Pharisees to trap Jesus, but where did Matthew place this chapter? Of all the things that Matthew's recording under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do you think it was just a coincidence that he takes this encounter and he puts it right after Matthew 18? Why did he highlight it? Jesus just got done talking about forgiveness and restoration and relationships. He just got done talking about humility and dealing with sin in our own lives and extreme care for one another. So what Jesus is saying is that even if there is sexual immorality, even if there's that, it doesn't need to lead to divorce. Whenever I am doing marriage counseling, especially if it's in a situation where it seems it's headed for divorce, I remind the couple of, one, if there is no infidelity, no abandonment, then I'm going to tell you there's really no grounds for divorce, so let's get it out of your head. And furthermore, even if there were, what God wants is reconciliation. That's what he desires. As, as painful as that may sound in the moment, that is what he wants. And that is what he is able to do if two parties surrender themselves to it. He wants restoration. That is how he is most glorified. And this now brings us to our third uh, lesson this morning. But, and I think it's the most important lesson, but let's review some things first. Go back to Jesus' first comment in verses 4 through 6. Jesus is saying, listen. God designed marriage. You didn't. And he's saying this isn't just some transactional relationship governed by the state. This is a covenant relationship that's ordained and created by God. And he shifts the perspective from us to him. Consider, if you will, for a moment in, in, um, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 22 and following. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's not, he's not saying there, your husband's, your husband's just like the Lord. He's awesome. Perfect. And he's saying, as to the Lord. Look at the relationship in this way. He's saying, look at, look at me. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, you're not off the hook. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. You know what the implication is there, husbands? You're called to die. And I fail on it, at, at it on a regular basis. We're called to die. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He goes on to say, Paul writes, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What's, what's he saying there? As Jesus shifts the perspective from us to him, he's saying, do you not understand what this marriage, this whole relationship is about? What's a picture of? Husbands and wives, it is not about you. And we so often, I so often make it that way. 
But it's bigger. The relationship is bigger. It has purpose. It's special. It is intended to convey something to this world. But we, because listen, listen, we are sinners. So it's not surprising that it gets really hard because you take two sinners and you put them together and more sin happens. And hurt happens. I'm not denying that. I'm not saying it's easy. But then what do we do? What do we do when all that sin comes in and all that hurt comes in? Far too often we go to the world to solve it and we go to the courts to end it. And what we should be doing is going to the church to solve it and to the altar to heal it. I mentioned earlier it's not by accident that Matthew places this here. Let's consider once again Matthew chapter 18, right? I mean, go back to that chapter. Many of you have studied this throughout the last couple weeks. You've dealt with it in your life groups. The beginning of Matthew 18, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus has to say, none of you. You're all missing it. You need to be humble. And then he says, and and by the way, not only do you need to be humble, but you need to be radically focused on your personal holiness. There's sin in your life. Get it out. Get it out. And and don't lead others astray. Be, 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 Be thoughtful about your own life and how it affects other people and how it affects the body of Christ. And then he says, and, and, and I'll leave all of you to go after this one. And I want you to have the same heart, which means that we are so concerned about others, not ourselves, others. And then he goes from there into saying, and there's going to be times when you are offended. There's going to be times when sin does come in. And when it does, confront it with love. Do it in this way so that you can come and be restored. And he gives us a pattern for that restoration. And do you think that pattern for restoration is just between brothers in the church? Hey, bro, you offended me. I'm going to enact Matthew 18. That doesn't apply to the marriage relationship. The same thing needs to be carried out in the marriage relationship. But we're like the Pharisees, you see, we're often more interested in what's the allowance? When's it okay for me to say too much? Instead of recognizing me, God hates this. And if I consider what God has to say, and I really take him seriously, what am I going to do? And you see, that's what the disciples were questioning. It caused them to think, well, maybe maybe you shouldn't get married. And here's the the interesting thing, and I know I've got to close this out. We've got to start this meeting soon. I knew this was going to happen. Listen, they ask him, they say, they, they say, should we just not get married? Right? And, and you'd expect, how do you expect Jesus to reply? Would you expect him to go, hey guys, no. Because listen, we've just considered what a wonderful picture of marriage is, right? Would you expect Jesus to kind of go, hey, no, listen, marriage is wonderful. Marriage is a beautiful thing. You're getting this all wrong. But surprisingly, no, this is not what Jesus says. What Jesus basically says is, maybe you shouldn't. Now this, can, again, can seem confusing because it's just been described how it was designed and ordained by God. And it is, but listen, we can only understand that, we can only experience that when our perspective is right on what marriage is. Because listen, as much as marriage is a blessing from God, yes, and is intended to, uh, to, to be a blessing to us, yes, What we must understand is that it is intended to be less for us and more for Him. We think, oh, what a blessing, God. You did this and that for me, and and this is wonderful. And, 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 you know, maybe, you know, I thought about that scripture. I was young and I was dating, and I'm thinking, man, this is better to marry than to burn with with passion, right? And so now I'm married, and things are feeling better, and I've got got, got this, this, this friend of mine, and all these things, and I'm not meaning to mock that, right? But we can look at all that and say, God, you're great, right? And then we can entirely miss that He brought all that together and joined man and wife together and said, I have brought you together. Let no one separate this because this 
marriage is not about you. It's about how you bring me glory. It's about him. And this is everything that Jesus has been talking about. Go all the way back to where he says, Peter, you're right. And, and, and on this rock I will build my church. And what have we done from that time? If you remember that passage, I believe so many people, and I, and, I, and, I, and I do stand firm on this one, I believe so many people have looked at that and said, yeah, that's Jesus saying he's building the church on all these other things, and I think it's absolutely wrong. I think Jesus is saying, I'm building this church on me. I'm the rock. And from that point forward, he begins to continue to take perspectives and turn them back to himself. Turn it back to Jesus. He turns it back to Jesus over and over again. And so he helps us to see that it's about him. And so in, the, in, in, in marrying or not marrying, really the question here is, what Jesus is saying is, what's the best way for you to serve me? As he goes on to say in verse 11, but he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. So the disciples say, maybe we shouldn't get married. He says, basically, yeah, maybe not. But listen, not everyone can accept that. But only those to whom it has been given. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for what? The kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. We don't use this term eunuch very often these days, and we're nearly out of time. In fact, we are out of time, and so I'm not going to go into great depth as to what a eunuch is. But at least let it be understood that there are some people who come into this life, and because of various physical things, Marriage is just not really in store for them. And there are some people who are sort of made that way at this particular time. If someone was brought into the, the king's uh, uh, service, if you will, and expected to do different things, sometimes they were physically made a eunuch and they were not able to marry. They were not able to procreate and there was a purpose behind that. But Jesus less focusing about on, on those two, but more so in some. Some are gifted in this way. Some have come into this life and they're very content in their singleness. And in that, just as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at that whole chapter. We don't have time to consider it today, but what Paul says there is he goes, listen, that would be better. If, you, if you're blessed and gifted in your singleness such that you can serve the Lord without distraction, praise God, do that. And so you see, this is the aim, that we serve the Lord. And when we understand marriage properly, we understand that it is a marriage and the covenant relationship in marriage is a wonderful thing not to be broken, which really brings us to that final point, point number three, that the covenant relationship of marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. And this is why he cares so deeply for and desires to protect it. Now listen, here's the thing. What we know is we don't always obey God's word on these issues. And I know once again, going back to the beginning that represented within this room is a whole variety of experiences as it relates to divorce and maybe in many of those cases, not necessarily biblical. And here's the other thing that though we don't get to discount that, though we don't get to dismiss that, what we can bring ourselves back to is once again the fact that that relationship was never really about us to begin with. It was about what it was showing us. It was about what it was pointing us to. And what is it that it was pointing us to? A true, right, and perfect covenant relationship between Christ and his church. Christ, Jesus, the bridegroom, right? Or the groom, excuse me, and the, and the bride, or the bridegroom, and then the bride, his church. What we must remember is that he has been faithful to it, which means we praise God that marriage, this side of heaven, is only a picture, not the real thing. That there is a marriage that awaits us and that it is perfect. You see, God's commitment to us is different, and he shows us grace and he shows us mercy. 
We read in Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 20, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, he says there, the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, that covenant will not be broken. And so to those who are affected by divorce and maybe living in the fallout of it, if you yourself are divorced, trust in the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of a faithful God. If you are single and have gone through a biblical divorce, trust Him in your singleness. If He opens the door for remarriage to a a godly man or woman in time, then praise God for that. If you are single from an unbiblical divorce, repent, seek God and trust Him then in your singleness. Allow Him to move and to work. If you are remarried, if the divorce was unbiblical, repent if you have not. But yet as Scripture tells us, remain where you are and seek to glorify God in that relationship. For all those who are married, seek to ensure that your marriage serves to exalt Jesus, for that is why it was designed. That your marriage is centered around Him and that your focus is making an impact for the kingdom, not on yourself. If you are single, serve Him without distraction for His glory until such time as He would lead you to do otherwise, but know that your life is intended to bring Him glory. In every case, look to Him because it's about Him. And know that in Him is grace and mercy and redemption and forgiveness and and faithfulness. And, And look forward to that day when you as a Christian are presented as a pure, spotless bride at the table of celebration for the greatest heavenly marriage, the greatest celebration we'll ever be a part of, that of Christ and His church, His bride. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to You once again regarding difficult topics that we've considered here this morning. Topics that influence us, uh, so many of us, Lord, no doubt, on a very deep personal level. And Lord, I just pray that each of us, Lord, myself included, would be able to take all of these things and surrender them to you. As we sang earlier, Lord, that we'd surrender all. May this be included in it, Lord, that we'd surrender our relationships, Lord, that we'd surrender our pride, that we'd surrender our expectations, Lord, that we'd surrender our hurts, that we'd surrender our desires, Lord, all to you, recognizing, Lord, that everything that you've done, Lord, giving us breath, Lord, and, and, and up to, Lord, the, the creation of marriage, the ordainment of marriage, Lord, these relationships that you've gifted us with, though they're wonderful blessings, all of it, Lord, all of it is intended to point others to you. It's intended to be a picture of you and your love towards us. May we never forget that, Lord, as we so often mar various images of you in this world today. Lord, help us to be a faithful people that follow after you and obey your word. Father, bless each of these here, Lord, today as they do just that, as they follow after you, Lord. Lead them and guide them and strengthen them, Lord, we pray in the matchless name of our Messiah, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.